Welcome, everybody, to the Resilient Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Haywood Shum, who is the founder and CEO of Binary. Welcome, Haywood. Thanks, Joe. Thanks a lot for coming. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really appreciate it. So maybe uh, we'll just kind of kick it off with like a quick introduction for yourself. You know, tell uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Okay. I'm Haywood Chum and uh, born and raised in Hong Kong. I'm native. Don't sound like it. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know how, like, yeah, I, it's pretty amazing. Pe- how people say I have an American accent, but yeah. I went to a British school. Oops, but I never British picked school. up the British okay. accent. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, for some reason, I don't know, it was just like too many American sitcoms growing up or what it is. Right. Um, what was your favorite when you were growing up? Movie-wise, probably American Pie series. Yeah, yeah. Typical teenager. They can't make those anymore. <laughs> they can't make those. It would not be shown. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, and... Um, um, just, um, yeah, born and raised in Hong Kong. Right. And I uh, went to university here. Just also, th- right. Yes. You didn't even, you never, right. So, yeah, <laughs> your English is just, well, that's kind of like a little. Dis- <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't match the, like, the voice like, I've heard. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. And I'm done. Just really happy to be here. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about uh, your, your uh, startup, uh, Binary. So, sure. Yeah. So binary, we, um, I'm not an accountant and somehow we're doing this startup, which is focusing on the problem of bookkeeping. Right. Right. And bookkeeping, um, as a, as a problem is felt by many, many businesses around the world, no matter how small or big you are. Sure. And currently I would say binary is a bookkeeping firm, Yeah. but what makes us different is we have a, many software engineers, as many as we do accountants. Right. So we're like, okay, our thesis is uh, we want to automate bookkeeping, right. but for a lot of, let's just say, non-digital native businesses, it's impossible at the moment. Mm. So people, human intelligence is required, but also... To the extent to set the rules, or I mean, to the extent to kind of set the structure, or... To the extent that the technology cannot um, automate at mm. this point. And some things, I believe, at this point should not be automated yet. Mm, okay. And so we see a kind of symbiotic relationship between, hey, okay, so um, what should we program as features and then what should be kept as a service? Right. And um, that's been like the pillars of how we started a company. Um, but to the end customer, and you know, we see a lot of SMEs being our direct customers, they don't really care whether it's technology or no technology. They just want the outcome. They just want the, yeah, the <laughs> output. They just want to, all right, I just reported my taxes or I already have my, you know, booking being done and everything like that. Like the yeah. admin side, right? Correct. Correct. Right, right. So we're like, okay, this is a monthly subscription. I just sign up to it. But the interesting thing is we got to compare ourselves, like what makes us different to traditional bookkeeping firms? Right, right, right. And the essence is we see that traditional bookkeeping firms or traditional accounting firms have different finance functions that they offer. Sure. Accounting, tax, um, corp sec, yep. and bookkeeping. And bookkeeping is the least sought after uh, revenue model Why? for the accounting firms because it's low margin. It's low margin and it's heavy labor. Yes, right, correct. Right, right. So high and, cost and yeah. Correct. Right, right. But actually, the data play is in the bookkeeping aspect. Mm. It's just during the production of the management accounts and the audits, a lot of data is just kept offline right. and the accounting firms just move on. So we're like, okay, and how do accounting firms charge, uh, charge the traditional ones by number of transactions? Right. 
So we're like, hey, there are high volume transactional businesses out there who have, you know, probably lower transaction values and, and they need bookkeeping help. And that's how we kind of found our customer personas and, right. and started from there. Right, right. <laughs> that's wild. I mean, you know, yeah, ultimately, I think uh, folks are just trying to get that sort of off their plate and have somebody to manage the entire thing, right? I mean, they're not going to go out and hire necessarily, or they could hire an external bookkeeper, but then even that person has a fair amount of cost, right? Correct. So it's about how to leverage technology to carry the cost savings over right. to the customer, as right. well as a bit of like KYC and accuracy through sure. the whole process. Right. And yeah. so what are the, I mean, you know, let's say from a timeline perspective, from a cost perspective, how much are people saving in terms of using your service versus, let's say, traditional bookkeeping? Sure. So I wouldn't say we're the cheapest if you're comparing purely based on cost. Of course, never say that. <laughs> you can go on the that, gig right? economy yeah, platforms, yeah, yeah, right? right? You can um, hire some talent for um, $5 American an hour. Right. Um, very remotely. Right. And essentially, I think we compare us the baseline to uh, traditional services if they sure. use the kind of whole transaction, trend, like how many number of transactions to charge the customer, sure. then we would typically be 30 to 40% um, cheaper. Less, right. Less right, right. or less. Yeah. And in that sense, it's because we charge based on your monthly revenue instead of your number of transactions. Oh, you charge on the revenue? Yes, correct. I see, I see. So we've seen two models. Some charge, more newer models is basically charging your revenue or charging your expenses. Right. And there's no one size fit all. Right. If you're a consulting company um, with a $10 million invoice, you don't really need a bookkeeper in no, that sense. Don't. Right. So it, uh, it fits a particular persona in the market. Right, right. So yeah, it's either transaction value or a total size of the business. That's what, that's how you kind of look at it. Correct. And then, you know, I guess there's different cutoffs or things like that that kind of switch it over to one or the other, right? Correct. And what other service, I mean, it's just pure play bookkeeping or do you, are you looking to extend beyond that? Like, because of course you're using a lot of AI, right? I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about the AI portion of your business. Sure. So um, this was before GPT 3.5 or GPT 4 came out. Right. And at the very beginning, we um, built our own model. Oh, so the whole, wow. So okay. the whole fine tuning process, right. the supervisory learning uh, right. was built into it. Right. Uh, purely from um, scratch from Python, we right. wrote this. And then um, right now it's deployed on Google Cloud. Right. And, and we're using, let me get this right, Google's product called Vertex AI. Vertex. Yes. Okay. And that's basically a platform that allows us to scale the model mm. as we grow. Right. But the reality that we got to face and embrace is when OpenAI came out with, you know, X billion parameters, X trillion parameter with those models, there's no way to compete. No. And they can do OCR extraction, like right. data extraction sure. is what I mean. Way like 100, 10,000 10, 10, times better than ours. Right. So that's where we started off data extraction because our customers had a lot of offline invoices sure. and need extract. Right. So as we kind of evolved, we embraced this reality, implemented GPT into our platform. Oh, you we, have implemented GPT? Yes. Right, right, for okay. specific use cases. Right. Um, for example, account, chart of accounts um, categorization. Of that line item, for example. Right. Um, but we still had our all our locally ingested data with our own model. So how do they complement each other? Right. And I think that's our use of AI till now. Mm. And obviously, what we did is a data extraction platform, and we built a lot of workflows on top. Mm. 
as I mentioned earlier, I think our customers don't really care about the, you know, the weaves of the software too much because it's not purely self-service. Right. The actual customer that benefits from the software is actually the accountant or bookkeeper. Right. So, so, so really it's like a B2B2C type model that you're offering. Yes, you can say so. Right, you right. can treat it like a Monday.com for bookkeepers. Right. <laughs> like Got a it. workflow management practice right, right, software right. for bookkeepers cool. to save their time. Right. So our acquisition channel actually was direct to SMEs and later mm. it became through accounting firms. I see. It makes I see. Their, makes so their, you were going direct to SMEs and then you're like, you know what, this is not going to, or maybe it's not as effective, right, as far as an approach to, yeah. or your go-to market strategy. Then you said, okay, let's just, the accountants, because they're the natural funnel, if you will, for all those SMEs, right? Sure. Yeah, right, right. Got it. That's cool. So then, I mean, how, how have you uh, progressed? I mean, you know, I, you know, we were talking earlier. I mean, you guys had, had yeah. uh, you know, just like a lot of other folks, I mean, ups and downs inside of the journey as far as the business is concerned and things like that. So yeah, talk a little bit about that. I don't think it's been, uh, we're not in the best time right now for the business, let alone the whole macro situation. Right. And, um, I'm well, on. I mean, how did you how did you arrive in this space, anyways? I mean, <laughs> I, I I forgot to ask you about that because I mean, because your background actually has not, like you said right at the beginning, is like you don't have any accounting background per se, and you know ultimately that wasn't even the area that you focused in on your career at sure. the outset, right? So how did you actually like discover this or end up in this entrepreneurial journey? <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> going back to square one. Um, um, okay, so the story is I was in a, um, a telecoms job for 10 years, enterprise sales. 10 years? Yeah. Wow, okay. And right. uh, that was like... Same firm? Uh, same firm, same wow. firm, right, same right, firm. Right. It was right. called BT, British Telecom. Right, so, <laughs> so you were like hyper-conservative, like you weren't like jumping, <laughs> no, doing, no, 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 doing no, different no. things no. and all that yeah. stuff, right? No. At that time. It was a great company, yeah. a lot of good people, sure. and, um, and it's, it's a very opposite end of the spectrum. I'm right. a sales guy. Those deals might take one or two years, RFPs, big size, multi-year outsourcing contracts. And then in there, I met my co-founder, Kelvin, okay. who was my first customer when he worked in the airline. He and was your first customer like for binary? No, for BT. Oh, BT. I sold got it to him. Okay, got it. And then he moved to a global accounting firm to become the CTO. Okay. And he tried digital transformation inside. It didn't work out too well. Yeah. So I always see each other with skill sets as complementary. Right. And we just kept in touch to be like, hey, should we try it out as a startup mode? Right, right. And then during that time, we just did some research, what's happening in the US, which mm. startups in the same space are getting funded. And we just decided to give it a shot. <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, it was during COVID. Um, one year of doing this as like a side hustle and then just went all in. Oh, so basically you just cut and run after like a year, like 2021 or something like yes, that. Yes, correct. Right, right, right. Correct. Wow. And he also did the same thing. Yes, correct. Wow. <laughs> but you already had pre-existing clients and things like that inside Four of that. More clients. Like, right. because it's not about getting more clients. I think it's more about, ah, man, do I really want to convict to this? Yeah. You know, like go full on. Right. Yeah. And what was the trigger event for you to say, I'm all in? <laughs> like, you know, you're, you know. Uh, hey, it's, it's not, nothing to do with, oh, we see these signals here, right? It's right. pretty much about to be 30, no kids yet. <laughs> and what, I like the, it. what the and hell? So it's, it's a lot of personal, yeah. less professional type. Yeah. Right, right. Correct. Because you can always double back and say, you know what? You know, I'll just go back to a corporate job, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. it's not that. 
it's not that far for you, right? Sure. Yeah, right. It's a different learning curve. It's like, what the hell? Why not? Right. Like, what's the most that can happen? Right. And so it was like... <laughs> and then you're like, oh my God, a lot has yeah, happened. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, what the hell did I get this? Um, but yeah, so cool. I mean, so so how has it been? I mean, you know, going back to that. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Uh, Started out fantastic. I mean, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that, I mean, uh, like, I mean, there's so many ups and downs, and I think you know, as of recent, there's been more downs and ups, but it mm. makes the ups a lot more appreciative. Sure. And I'll give a few examples. It's you know, it's only after a few years when you've ran a startup, like acquired customers, do the fundraising, you start reflecting on like, hey, could I have done it better as a team or right. you know, individually? And I think one thing that um, did not set us up for more successes. I was fundraising all the time, like raising money sure. every few months sure. instead of like, hey, you know what? Let's like these three months FOMO, put your check in yeah. and I have 36 month runway to yeah. like, you know, grow to deliver, right? yeah, <laughs> so, execute and deliver. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, once we made that choice of like, hey, every few months, da, 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 it's just, uh, you know, it just, hurt us right as a company right and imagine like hiring someone you gotta let them go you know three four months later yeah just because of a cash flow issue right right so and we also embarked on a lot of experiments uh i think and i think andreessen horowitz said this every single funding stage you do it's like de-risking something mm. and we just went like hey we haven't even done one thing too well yet we're embarking too many other things Oh, so you actually started to expand the product set or, or even geographic or coverage. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and it's just like... A specific example, right? Like um, we have one product, which is the bookkeeping thing as a service or as a pure software sure. uh, to accountants. And then people um, start saying, hey, the data is valuable. What, what can you do with that as a data play? And who values the data? And I would say a lot of um, institutional commercial lenders... Let's talk about some of the credit scoring side. Let's talk about some of the, you know, data ingestion. How can we clean it up? And I'm that's great. It's just I think at a comp at our size of the company at that time, it might be better for a later stage where sure. fundraising is required to, yeah, to to be you know sensible in that conversation. Yeah. So I think it's the balancing between long term and short term projects mm. and. Yeah, and that's that's one of the you know things that I've really learned. Yeah, as a, I mean, I think the, the last time that we were talking, it was like, yeah, exactly. There was there was a lot of interest in uh, using that type of data, trying to determine if there was uh, what the usability was for what types of use cases um, when you do like credit scoring or lending and things like that for specifically for SMEs. But then you basically reverted back to the core because you know. Whether it was because, you know, you just wanted to double down or whether you had to. Yes. I think that's just kind of uh, part and parcel of the market conditions, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think those things take longer to materialize. Yeah. It can also always be part of the vision. But it's just that your ambition, I believe, should be more, way more focused on one thing at our seed stage size. Right. Instead of a multi-venture right. approach. Yeah. Yeah. And you can use that as your equity story, right? I mean, yeah. It's just like... You know, this is like, you know, next year or maybe two years down the road that you're going to create this credit decision engine or whatever off of this type of data to address certain SMEs and things like that, right? So, yeah. So what, uh, what segments of SMEs do you serve most or, I mean, um, how do you kind of break it down? 
Uh, yes, I, I kind of break it down into three industries. Uh, one is digital native companies who would want to work with more digital native bookkeepers. Right. So from pre-revenue to Series B. Pre-revenue to Series B. Yeah. Right. So at around so Series the pre-revenue B. pre-revenue guys are like, do they pay you or do they give you like shares? <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm, sure have they, I'm sure some of them like, you know what? Uh, Haywood, I, I don't have the money today. Uh, can I give you like? <laughs> uh, uh, no, we've we've seen a few of those agreements here right, and there, right, and right. I think, and more importantly, um, it's just getting them the right shape of the books to do the fundraise. Mm, right. And usually, I think it's it's more about like just cultivating those relationships at the start. Because right. for us, the pre-revenue customers are very much brand building, right? For us, I see, I see, right, right. right. Yeah. And then as we move up the um, ladder to the Series B, it's usually the companies before the ERP levels. Okay. So before the ERP levels, but they still need the financial controller, they're starting to hire a CFO, but for more, I would say, manual labor on the bookkeeping side, they would utilize us. Mm. So it becomes like a hybrid model. Right. It's like, we'll never know their internal culture better than the CFO. Right. And, uh, but bookkeeping is quite homogeneous. Sure. So we're like, Hey, can we work as a hybrid? Wow. So that's like, that's for the digital native um, companies. Right. And then we go to more of the e-commerce guys. Okay. As a second branch and then FMB food and beverage. Okay. So the common nature is high volume of transactions amongst these two, um, industries. And, uh, I think, I think if I have to choose who need us the most, probably be FMB. Will be FMB. Yes, will be FMB. Because right. on the POS side, they're super well automated, but it's the it's the trough of data on the supplier invoices side. Oh, right. Which right. is still very offline. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they're just like, here, <laughs> sign this. They, like, they show yeah. up and they deliver the stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the vendors are not... Uh, I mean, in some ways, you have to go all the way down to the entire supply chain to automate those people, but there's nobody that's going to do that. Right? Exactly. It's, it's very a, difficult. Very, very, yeah. very. Right. I think, I think that's more, you know, without the, um, unit economics hat on, like, yeah. like when you ask the fundamental question of who loves this the most, right. I would say it's an FMB bunch, right. but it's a scalable and how much education needs to be put into it way too much. Right. So, so <laughs> it's, uh, like, it's <laughs> a little bit, a uh, little bit challenging, but, I mean, it's an interesting uh, problem set, though, right? So, I mean, what's what's been the experience, I guess, in terms of you, you were talking a little bit about fundraising and things like that, and yeah. you know, what's what's been the journey on that front, like as far as fundraising is concerned, because you basically bootstrapped from the very beginning, and then you know, had a number of different discussions and things like sure. that. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, we yeah, we bootstrapped for the first one year and a half. Yeah. And then we're like, let's give this a shot. Right. So what we we didn't come from a VC background or another startup, mm. so it was pure cold emailing at the start right. and a bit of Google search, submit your pitch deck and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So the thing is, um, as I said, we didn't really gather a bunch of pipeline and then execute it in a three-month thing. So every three, four months or you know six months, it's been like finding a new investor. Sure. And I think that to our detriment, that led us to just recently had to let go of a lot of people wow just because of the cat like cash flow yeah. and the burn rate and so exactly forth. exactly mm. so it was high five digit usd burn rate like net burn a month and wow. we just had to let the people go like great talent and none of their fault as well sure 
Um, but at the same time, how do we maintain that customer base, right? Let alone MMR, MRR growth. Right. All right. But that, that's purely on a finance basis. And how do we migrate away customers that are on pure econo- uh, unit economics for us? So that's all like numbers decisions. And right. then the, obviously the mental toll on a lot of people, morale, sure. it's just, it's just collateral damage. Right. And as a CEO, you take full responsibility for that. Mm. And, uh, that sucks. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a fun, fun time. Right? No. Yeah. So how do you kind of, uh, you know, from this experience, kind of stabilize the team, you know, increase motivation or morale? Like what, what are sort of like mm-hmm. the things that you kind of pulled as like uh, levers to kind of maintain it, if not, you know, increase it? I think it's just, just be like genuine and, and real right. with the team. And what I mean by that is, I think there's this thing I learned a few years ago where you make decisions like Captain Spock from okay. Star Trek, <laughs> but you deliver it like Mother Teresa. Uh, okay. So I've been, ad- uh, you know, it's just like something like, oh, that's interesting. And I've just been adopting that philosophy right. when it comes to these kind of periods. Right, right. So you know, be very logical yeah. in your sort of, at least a construct of what you want to communicate, but then very empathetic in yeah. the way that you deliver it. Right? Correct. Right, right. And and so that's that that's the framework, but you know, to colleagues, it's like, what is, what is our mission? Are you happy here? Have we empowered you enough? And and look at the value that you're offering to our customers, which stuck with us through this period, even right. after we increased their prices. Sure. I mean, isn't that a testament to you and something? Right. So I think that empowered a lot of our colleagues mm. and it's it's not empty words. It's the actions through you know our customers' commitment to us, right. and vice versa. Right. Which uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. It's a tough story. And then like as far as but financial performance has improved, right? I mean it's it's yeah. gone up. Right? Yeah. So. We broke even on the PNL for the past two months. Right. Fluctuating here and there, but at least it's not burning high five digigits per month. Yeah. Right. Because right. <laughs> so. I don't even know where to get the. Like fundraise for that kind of cash in this environment. Oh, right? absolutely. So um, it's survival mode, and you know what is absolutely necessary, uh, you know, as a to, to survive. Right. And I I wrote on LinkedIn yesterday. I think this is like a massive detox for the company. Sure. And as a human, when you detox, you you lose muscle mass and all that kind of stuff. Right. But you become leaner. Yeah. And you're more agile. You get into calisthenics and. Right. Right. Same same kind of analogy here, right? Right. <laughs> and then so yeah, I mean, what what other things did you have to actually? I mean, you looked at the headcount and those things. I mean, what else did you kind of? What other measures would like an entrepreneur kind of look at in this type of survival mode? Um, literally, it was looking at the, at the at, I mean, the cash every single day. Right. What goes in and what uh, come? What goes in? And in terms of collectibles, the receivables, make sure you get them on time. Sure. Um, what can be delayed going out? How do you reduce your liabilities? So this is like very CFO kind of mindset. Just, I mean, in terms of, you also got to plan what's next. And I think that's the hardest part because when you're in that survival mode and you're trying to think what's next more longer term, it, it's a complete, you know, left and right. Right. It's a big mental block. Right. How can you think long-term strategy whilst you're survival moding every day? Mm, right, so right. I'm still trying to, get through that, you know, mental barrier, but you have to for the longevity of the company. 
Right. And then I think what's, you know, what's next is kind of like, hey, we got X hundred of customers at the moment. How can we get to, you know, double this? And based on everything that we've learned before on acquisition methods, what worked and what hasn't, you know, what, what can we do again? Right. And yeah, then, so I mean, yeah. basically you're, you not only pivoted out as far as like the product and propositions, right? You were talking about, okay, leveraging big data to go and do credit scoring, but then you pulled back from that. What, how did you pivot in terms of the go-to market, right? Correct. Um, we didn't really try anything new. We tried double down on what really worked for us. Right. The stuff where it was negative ROI in terms of acquisition cost, yep. or it was just poor um, customer quality, mm. and we would just say, no, we're not renewing, we're not doing any of that anymore. And I rather have slower growth at the moment, but not give us surprises mm. at this point, because uh, we can't afford it. Right, right. <laughs> And the quality, when you talk about that, is like, is that just because they're asking for a lot of customization or like, what, what are the elements of the quality here for us? Right. Yeah, I would say customization is one thing. Um, second thing, it really comes down to the founder or the CFO fit. What, what I mean by, what mean I mean by like... that is sometimes, you know, especially a lot of SMEs, not Fortune 50s, but SMEs, the culture of that SME and same for the startup comes from the, the founder mm. itself. And whether that founder in a most simple way is a micromanager or macro manager or knows how to delegate, there's no right or wrong. It's just sometimes working with a service provider, if you're very micromanaging, it's very hard to work with. Right. And especially with the morale situation our internal mm. staff are dealing with, it's a problem we don't really need to have. Right, right. So it's, I think it's, you know, it's not as simple as like just filling an RFP and you win the bid kind of thing. I think it's like, you know, you see them every week as a, as the accountant to the right. customer. So that's something we have to take into account. Well, yeah, I mean, all those folks say, well, I mean, you're in the accounting business. There's got to be a lot of micromanagers in there. No, but, <laughs> but that's, yeah. uh, that's an interesting, because yeah, you basically are, I guess in the have the benefit of picking and choosing who you work with, right? Absolutely. At this point, right? Because the more trouble that they offer to you and your staff, and it just kind of demoralizes them, right? And you don't need that right now. Sure. Right? Yeah. Cool. And then so um, so you kind of look at the current market situation, and you know where do you see do you see light at the end of the tunnel for this thing? Or I mean, not not for your business, but I mean just the overall macro situation what's your read on this right now for for you in, in the context of your business in the context of our business yes i definitely see light at the end of a tunnel yeah um i think for what we achieved at this stage at the seed stage it's really only the hong kong market which accounts for like 85 percent of our revenue right and i the other 15 percent is the light at the end of the tunnel for me which means customers in other countries and and you're this. doing like Southeast Asia or yes. you're okay, yes. Southeast Asia, some in the US. Right. Um, wherever they adopt cloud bookkeeping. Mm. And it's uh, it's homogeneous. And in a way, in where the US the buying pattern is very different than the customers buying in Asia. Mm. What I mean by that is in the US, which I kind of prefer for our business model, is they would choose a partner for bookkeeping, they would choose a partner for tax. They would choose, you know, specific function with that partner. But in Asia, it's like 
you have to do the model where you have to do a full service. Right. You know, oh, all, you do. all in one. You all need in one. to. You need to. Okay. And that's that's where we might or might not pivot in that way. Because I realize if you're so niche in the bookkeeping space like we are, you're kind of constricting yourself mm. to the buy and buying pattern here. Right. And we're more, I think, suited for the US in that sense. Mm. Where they're more particular with each niche. Right. So that's a consideration. But that to me is like an opportunity, definitely. And uh and and light in the end of a tunnel, it's just survive through this cycle. I mean, we went through ZERP. We can see Carter and all these platforms and the numbers. And as much as I don't like looking at those numbers, the reality is just going to survive this period, whatever it takes. Right. And as you said, Neil, like that equity story, it doesn't change. It's yes. just when you execute on it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I think it's got a fantastic growth opportunity. It's just, uh, it's just timing, market timing. It is, well, nobody can guess, but I mean, yeah, like you said, uh, a lot of things are in terms of survivability and so forth. So, I mean, do you see yourself kind of pushing a little bit more into, uh, the, you know, going into more, let's say, U.S. or Southeast Asia markets with the with the product? Actually, how do those folks find you? Because you're based in Hong Kong, like. You know, how, how do they actually, uh, how have you kind of acquired those clients? Sure. So the, um, the U.S. clients, most of those clients are actually fractional CFOs. Okay. So right. we made a few blog posts here and there with some backlinks, yep. um, tried the whole Reddit approach, some yep. growth hacking through Twitter, leave comments, and, and that was the initial start. Right. Because okay. the audience loves that stuff. Right. right. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, I mentioned this example earlier. It's kind of like these fractional CFOs are serving these um, funds, AUM around 50, 100 million. And the fund administrator does a great job in the compliance, quarterly reporting. But we're essentially the bookkeeper for these kind of sort of funds. And it's, a, it's like an interesting market. I wouldn't say like, hey, that's the market we're going to double down on. But right. that's, our, that's what we got so far organically. Right. right. And then for SEA, however, that would be for our next round of fundraising to, you know, expand on that market and try to replicate the same playbook that we have built in Hong Kong through the accounting firms, et cetera. Right. Um, but essentially the same thing. It's just more like it's not doing we, we don't do any paid ads. It's more like, hey, um, just target a few accounting firms that have a very digital native approach. Try it out. Let me know some feedback and right. It was that kind of approach. Right. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's almost like uh, social media marketing to get these types of accountants or fractional CFOs to get on board. So. Yeah, and then you maybe just kind of deploy it inside of the U.S. or do it, you know, down in Singapore or other places like that. Right. So, yeah. So when you look at the the sort of like the competitive landscape, I mean, there's some pretty big players inside of this space, like. How do you differentiate against some of these other folks, right? So uh, I won't you, say the name. But, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, usually when um, someone asks me that question, I think the blue ocean is really there. Yep. And I, in terms of if we go to a customer, uh, those three segments, usually only uh, one segment, which, are the, which is the digital native segment, have heard of the other competitors. Mm. And in terms of competitors really deep in our bookkeeping space, uh, there isn't really any in Asia, but even if there is, that's a validation to me right. that, hey, you know, there's someone else operating this market trying to solve this problem, which is great for the space. Right, right. And I would say the 
not competitors, but I would say more partners would be the digital native players, but they offer the full service in Asia. There's two or three of them here and two big ones in the US. I think there's enough space for everyone. Because right. if I go, um, and for those living in Hong Kong, I go to Tun Moon tomorrow, go to a factory building and just do a survey of, have you heard of any of us? The chances are zero percent. Really? Yeah. Wow. So because the space is still very occupied by a lot of traditional players and accounting firms are legacy, a lot of legacy businesses. Mm. So it's about how to incorporate yourself in that ecosystem. Do you see that, uh, you know, bringing these types of accountants, uh, like the digital transformation of those accountants, like you said, uh, is, is that part of what you guys also do? Or people just come in and say, you know, I just want to troubleshoot and use this software and figure it out myself. Do you have like sales teams or yes. t training teams or something like that? Or? Yeah, we, we have CS team to do this. And um, I, I would say in Hong Kong specifically, it's very low percentage that wants to self-service, click on the question mark toggle and figure it out themselves. Right. Usually it's like, walk me through this. Yeah. Um, oh, and then actually, I don't really want to use the software. Can we just outsource the whole thing to you? Oh, wow. Which means, <laughs> oh, well, why don't you white label to us? And, right. and, the, and that goes back to just the, the nature of a lot of Asian-based accounting firms. So they just completely outsource it to you, and then you basically load the date. Like, sure. Right, right. Sure. Do the OCRs sure. and all that stuff. And right. their customers don't even know about our existence. Wow. It's a win-win in that situation. Right, right. And we, we've also done the experiments. When you talk about digital transformation, um, there are a lot of accounting firms looking to exit. And um, let's just say the partner's retiring in their 60s. Sure. The second generation doesn't want to take over. And we thought about this. Do we do an aggregator play of fundraising to acquire these accounting firms right. and improve the margins on it? Yep. And more like a PE play. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a very interesting conversation. Right. So I think in terms of, you know, big size accounting firms, though, though that's not our target at the moment. I think it has to be like a, What's that? What's that thing? Product-led growth. Product-led growth strategy for sure. these accounting firms, one by one. Right. <laughs> nice. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like a very, very specific niche right now. I mean, and of course, it's growing and it's got a lot of opportunities. Now, where do you see, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, where do you see this going? I mean, you, you have a, lo a lot of different uh, options like we were talking about earlier, right? I mean, um, where do you see yourself developing, whether it's in terms of the product, whether it's the tech, whether it's even geographic, like what sort of direction are you looking at? Mm. Um, I think in terms of the product, we really need to um, increase the, the, in the end of the day, it's about the accuracy of the data, data extraction. And as we sort of scan more invoices from different worlds, at uh, different, different countries, in different languages, different formats, that's a lot of training to be done, like whether it's fine tuning uh, or whatever. And how do we leverage on the GPTs as well as the local data that we already have? Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very important because that, that, that is what defines our unit economics mm -hmm. for the business. Um, because I don't think it's very smart to just keep hiring bookkeepers you know, uh, to, to, to fuel the revenue. To support right. the revenue because that defeats the thesis right. of why we're doing this in the first place. Right. So I would say geo expansion for sure, but the product enhancement 
um, is the future. And there's enough space there. And I mean, apart from the data play that we talked about, there's enough work to be done right. just in that territory. And then, so how much, I guess if you kind of look at the roadmap specifically for the AI portion is like, what other areas are you thinking about that could potentially be leveraging AI to, you know, execute a lot of the automation? Sure. I think more from a chatbot perspective, perspective um, because if you imagine right now when you deal with your accountant on a monthly basis or an annual basis, you send in a bunch of documents, they sometimes cannot match that transaction to your bank statement. Because uh, I'll give you a very specific example. Sometimes if you haven't paid an invoice for three months and then you send in a check, that's the total amount of three months worth of invoices. You can't really automate that. That's a, that's a human, human clarification required. Right. Oh, oh yes, I've actually uh, sent in this check to pay for these three invoices. Right. <laughs> yeah, so how would you... So, so that, that's where I think the last step whether, hey, everyone moves to Airwallex or Reap uh, and, uh, they're, you know, for, for credit card usage and everyone moves to Stripe and, I mean, that's the, that's the most beautiful world, mm. right? But that, that journey, it's, it's, it's going to take a long time, especially in this part of the world. Right. So in that sense, okay, let's, let's, let's kind of admit that, you know, not everyone's going to be an early adopter and use these tech stacks especially in the businesses that we're talking about earlier. Mm. But at the same time, we're utilizing a lot of our human labor to interact with these customers. Where does a chatbot come in? Do they understand the nature of that business, the customer, et cetera? I think it is a human business after all. Mm -hmm. So I think to answer your question, it's chatbot part. Chatbot will be the sort of like the next phase of the development, right? Yes. Right. Correct. And then um, I guess... As far as the uh, the use of the AI, it's like how have you seen that type of use case before inside of any other like not necessarily inside of accounting, but inside of other institutions that might be something that you can learn from or yeah, I um, <clears throat> there's recently been a company in, uh, in in Silicon Valley called Puzzle. Puzzle, yeah, okay. Puzzle. They just raised uh, uh, thirty five million US. Okay, a uh, very big round. Right, and it is, I would say, the most advanced accounting software for, for uh, SMEs in the world at the moment. Fully automated with AI. Right. So everything you can think of from um, literally like the onboarding flow, the way you interact with um, the accounting software, it's, it's, I would say it's a gold standard. Right. And I mean, we, we reference of like what they're building. Hey, it makes a lot of sense. Sure. And they actually executed on it. So right. good for them. But I mean, apart from the accounting space, I, just on Twitter all the time, right? I mean, you have a lot of the uh, indie hackers, or not, not necessarily the guys working at OpenAI, but like people just building off it. As you know, with the GPT, uh, people are just building their own GPTs now. Yeah. Uh, and it was just interesting to see how they, the bots that they create. Yeah. And you, you just take a bit of piece of information from here and there and try to apply it to your business. And try to create something new, right? Yeah. Is there any sort of uniqueness between, let's say, the uh, U.S. or Southeast Asia versus Hong Kong in terms of the accounting or any of the accounting practices that make it more unique than others? If you're talking about purely from a bookkeeping level to generate the P&L and balance sheet, no. Right? Right. Cash basis, accrual basis, IFRS, U.S. gap. Yeah. Uh, but 
because of the tax laws in each country, like for example, we tried in Indonesia, and then we realized, hey, there's a country tax, there's a state tax, there's a village tax, wow. and then and then you have different set of books for accustoming to each tax regime, and I think it's it's, it's that makes the bookkeeping life tough, because in the end of the day, you know, there's so many changes to be made. It's never like static, right? Right. Some customers are like, "Yo, I need three sets of books: one for the lending application, you know, one for one for this, one for that." And um, I think in the U.S., we see it a lot more standardized. And I just think it's just part of the you know development there. I think it's just a lot, lot more mature. Mm. But in Southeast Asia, we do see these instances, and it makes closing the books a lot harder. I would say. More, more difficult. More, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit more. Uh, it's nuanced. It's yeah. very nuanced. Very nuanced stuff. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, what other key learnings you would take as far as uh, you know your entrepreneurial journey up until now? I mean, what would you kind of top three, top five kind of recommendations for different founders or people that are inside of their businesses that are, you know, maybe struggling or kind of going through the yeah. same experience that you've been going through, right? So, <laughs> Number one is share your share your struggle. Share it. Yeah. Like tell tell people yeah, or tell it. Like it's uh, for mental health or I think for mental health. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely for I can only speak for myself here. Just helped lay, letting it out. Right. If you're uh, and and it might not fit everyone's personality. Right. I'm just not very like hey you know keep his face like hey it's going well Everything it's going is well fantastic and you're just gonna build the build it up inside you. Yep. And then you're just gonna make irrational decisions for the company. Mm. it's just not worth it right so there's out there's enough there's enough you know forums out there on twitter people going through the same thing let alone face to face you know and i know it's not the best topics to talk about during networking sessions so right. choose the right forum to express this mm. right and you might you might not get empathy from everyone and uh but you will from one or two and you know, and that's all you need really Right. <laughs> so, so I think that's the first thing. Second thing is, don't mind the noise around you. In the end of the day, and um, you can get distracted from, oh, this guy raising this much on TechCrunch. Um, oh, they built this first. If you're working in a space where the best is, you're defining your new category. If you're in a space where, kind of like us in a blue ocean, there's a lot of people not adopting this, you know, tech stack yet. There's there's enough time. Just don't like overstress it. Right. There's enough capital in the world. Just, just, I guess that comes down to the optimism at the end of the day. And number three, it's, uh, yeah, don't let go of the people that join your company, you know, in the first, uh, the first joiners, I would say. Mm -hmm. They might not be the best at executing this and that, but they could have been anywhere else, but they believed in your mission at the start. Right. And I would say, even for myself, I might not be the best person to lead the company from 10 to 50, but I did it from one, like day one to day 10. Right. And there might be a better person to take my spot for the company's, in the best, in the company's best interest. And that the same goes for your initial team. But at least everyone had a little part to play in this whole journey. Right. So I think that kind of puts things into perspective. Right. Yeah. Cool. Hey, Haywood, uh, thanks a lot for coming into the show. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for all the different insights and your learning. And really telling us how it is. I mean, you know, being very honest and open and authentic about it 
super interesting. So thank you so much. Thanks, Neil. Thanks.